So if you guys have a Bible, why don't you open up to the book of Acts, chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We have ushers that would love to ush you a Bible. So I want to first, we'll pray, and then we'll jump in. We'll do a little bit of a recap as to what we've been looking at so far in the story of the book of Acts. The book of Acts is uh, it's a narrative, it's a story about the early church, uh, what it looks like to be people who follow God. It's kind of a, um, uh, a biography about the church. So let me pray, and then we'll get into kind of the subject matter that we'll be taking a look at here this morning. So, God, thank you so much for your love for us. God, that you have called us, you have compassion and demonstrated great grace to us through Jesus. So, Lord, we ask you right now that you would open our hearts, open our minds. God, help us to be able to see things out of your scripture, out of your word, that's that would be life-giving, that would be able to help us to recognize who we are as your people so that we would live in accordance with what it looks like to be people of God. That's who we want to be. So help us, we pray right now. We need the Holy Spirit's enablement to do that well. So we submit and we open our hearts to you, Holy Spirit, and say, please, shape us, reveal to us. God, things that may be incongruent and not consistent with the life that you are. So, Holy Spirit, now begin to bring about an awareness of those areas. And we commit our time in your hands. We pray these things in Jesus' name. All said. Amen. All right, so let's jump right in. I have a slide that kind of bullet points a few things we'll jump into, and then we'll get right back into the text. So, first of all, the recap would be this. Simply put, the story of the book of Acts is really about the story of Jesus, Jesus, who was this would-be prophet, slash good speaker, slash teacher, slash rabbi, slash would-be Messiah, was put to death and ultimately raised again from the grave. He resurrected. So in other words, he wasn't just a would-be, he was the actual real deal. This is who Jesus was. He was a prophet. He was a priest. He was truly the Messiah, is the Son of God. And more than that, he wasn't just simply a prophet, Messiah. He is indeed Yahweh in the flesh, or Yahweh incarnate. God come to rescue his people. And so there was this uh, large group of once dejected and distraught followers of Jesus, Peter, James, disciples, and so on and so forth, that they had lost all sense of hope. They were hopeless people trying to make sense of the fact that this would-be Messiah, slash rabbi, slash prophet, slash teacher is now dead. But everything changed. The entire reality about their lives had some completely been turned upside down because this once dead Messiah is now alive. And that Jesus appears to them. We're told throughout the book of Acts that Jesus appeared to them, showing himself alive. The book of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 describes that Jesus rose again uh, from the dead according to the scriptures, and he appears to all of these people. And so now what you have are these once dejected and distraught followers now completely animated with brand new life from the Holy Spirit, God giving them life because they had seen, they are eyewitnesses to the fact that Jesus rose again from the dead. Their life was radically changed. So I'll give you an example of this, that if you have ever been a part of a circumstance where some form of news came to you, you witnessed something, you saw something, you were an eyewitness of something, and that news radically changed and reshaped the landscape of your reality, that's what happened with these guys. I'll give you an example for me. The first time I became, well, you only can become, well, when I was a dad, when I became a dad, actually a dad, like my firstborn daughter came into this world. So it's about 20 years ago that when my daughter came into this world, I, I had no idea what to expect. I'd you know, never been down this path before. And I remember in the delivery room, my daughter came into this world in this overwhelming sense of emotion just washed over me. I literally lost it. I lost all sense of just being in control, being together. I completely burst out out of the depths. Like I've never wept and cried with such a profound sense of like, emotion and angst, but it was good angst, because uh, my daughter is now in the world. That event changed me, because from that point forward, I then had a new story. The story was, I would go around and tell people, and this is before Facebook came around and all that, but I'm sure if it was around, I'd take photos and selfies and post them of her and me and her, uh, so the world can see, but instead, back in the old school days, we would basically just preach it and proclaim it and tell people, anybody that I can see and talk to, I would say, my daughter is born. She's in the world. I am a dad. 
Something on my landscape, on my horizon, changed my life forever. And that's what happened with the disciples. Jesus died. They were distraught, but rose again the third day. And their entire life was transformed as a result. of it. And they went around proclaiming this. And that's the story of the book of Acts. That's what we see. So we see this, this ongoing, cascading, outspreading uh, movement that started in Jerusalem with just a small band of, like I said, distraught people. Now something has begun to change. The entire tide has changed. A brand new day has begun to dawn. So what we see in Acts chapter 13, I'm bringing it to where we're at right now, is the story literally pivots towards Paul. So up until this point, you have different characters throughout the story, like Peter and James and Stephen, and there's these little snippets where it describes other characters in the early church. But now there's a very definitive transformation or pivot point throughout the story of the book of Acts where it now begins to shift towards the main character, who's going to be the main character throughout the story, is this guy by the name of Paul, Paul the Apostle. Now, if you were paying attention last week, if you were here last week, uh, there was a sudden shift in the Bible story of this guy, Paul, because if you know about the story, you know his name was not always Paul. That prior to his name, Paul, what we know him as Paul, his name was Saul, Saul of Tarsus. But in the book of Acts, chapter 13, we're actually just simply told Saul, also known as Paul. We're not told why his name was changed, we're just simply told his name was changed to Paul. Another thing that's kind of interesting to note in Acts chapter 13 is the, the, the way that Paul's name appears in the Bible. Like, for example, prior to what we're going to see right now, um, whenever Paul's name would appear, it would have been something like Barnabas and Paul. So, so the main character would be someone before Paul. But now, from this point forward, throughout the rest of the book of Acts, it's always going to be a different order. It's going to be Paul and Barnabas, and Paul and Timothy, or Paul and Silas. It's always going to be focusing upon this one main character by the name of Paul. And so the thing that we'll take a look at in just a second here with regard to Paul, this is an important character. The final thing that we'll just take a look at, kind of bring us up to speed, is that this gospel now enters into brand new territory. So up until this point, uh, Christianity, as we know it, um, was literally sort of this, this localized community of people in the center, in the heart of the you know, Middle Eastern city or Middle Eastern world of uh, Israel, or otherwise known as Jerusalem. That was the main body where Christianity thrived and flourished and grew out from. There were some pockets of Christians up in the region of Galilee and some places in between. But for the most part, it was in Jerusalem. In fact, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus actually makes his prediction. He says that, look, when the Holy Spirit, when the very breath of Yahweh breathes upon you and animates your life and gives you new hope and brings about this new day and changes your heart, this movement of the Holy Spirit's presence through you will move you. You will do something. In other words, as the wind blows, you'll be like a tree. You know, we sing that song, you know, like, I don't know, you're the wind, we're the branches. However, you know what I'm talking about? The song, Oh, How He Loves Us? We'll probably sing this after the words. So, you know what I'm talking about, that song? You guys? Okay, both of you are supporting me. Thank you. Um, but the idea, like, that's the picture of the Holy Spirit. Breathing, and we're, we're being moved by the Holy Spirit. He is moving us, as opposed to us being stationary, like a brick wall. There's something living about us that we move in responsiveness to his movement, his animation. That's what the Holy Spirit was doing. But the Holy Spirit was actually moving the early church, the early followers of Jesus, not only from Jerusalem, but to the outer regions of Judea, which is another way of kind of describing the county. Uh, you know, we have San Luis proper, the city, and then you have San Luis County, which might be Osos and Santa Margarita and some of these other outlying regions. And as the gospel begins to spread, this is what's happening. It's beginning to telescope out beyond the main centralized location of uh, Jerusalem to Samaria, which Samaria would have been kind of identified as the, the place that, that no good Jew really wants to go because the Samaritans were sort of this despised people group. Yes, they were racist. Absolutely, I just said it. Early church was racist. They loved the nation of Israel. They were most, most part Jewish. But the Holy Spirit loves, God loves Samaritan people. And as the Holy Spirit was moving in their heart, he was washing away racism washing away nationalism, washing away patriotism, and replacing it with the heart of God, which involved loving Samaritans. This is amazing. It's what the gospel does. It washes away this bigotry that we may have inherited from our family or our background or our nation 
or our hood, and it begins to replace it with love for all people. And we see the gospel beginning to go out into the region of Samaria, and then we're told to the utter ends of the world, and that's exactly where we're at now in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 13, we begin to see the gospel now moving into the region of um, Asia Minor, which would be known as modern-day Turkey. And then it's going to keep moving forward, eastward, I should say westward, over towards like Europe and whatnot. But that would be considered the utter ends of the earth. I mean, as far away from Israel and Jerusalem as you can imagine, that's how the gospel begins to move. And so now here we are, 2016, living in San Luis Obispo, very, very, very far away from Jerusalem, and the gospel is here. If you're a Christian, it's because the gospel has moved from its centralized location in Jerusalem and begun to grow and expand into the point where here you are. God loves you that much. Powerful. So let's jump into the story now. We'll take a look at three things in the passage. It's kind of a lengthy passage, and I actually won't read the entirety of it because it's actually a sermon. Paul preaches, and I mentioned this is kind of a pivot point where the focus now begins to uh, be emphasizing Paul the Apostle. This is also the very first time in the book of Acts where Paul the Apostle actually gives a sermon. So in some ways, you can say this is a sermon about a sermon, which is exactly what it is. Paul is going to be preaching. But what I want to take a look at here a little bit is specifically three things. One, we'll just pause to take a look at Paul the man, who he is. We'll just kind of reflect upon some thoughts and ideas with regard to Paul. Secondly, we'll take a look at Paul's method. What was Paul doing? How was he doing it? And then finally, we'll take a look at Paul's message. And I didn't mean to alliterate these things. It just happened that way. So I apologize for that. Anyways, Paul the man. Let's take a look at Paul the man. Just pause and think about this. Because prior in the book of Acts, we were introduced to this guy by the name of Saul of Tarsus. Uh, We're told and introduced by him as being this man that was breathing out threats against the church. Uh, Paul literally was traveling. He was on a mission. His mission was not to proclaim Jesus or plant churches. His mission was to arrest anybody that had believed that Jesus was the Messiah. That was his mission. His mission was to subvert Christianity. Uh, Put it in another context, you may be able to actually make an argument for Paul was an actual terrorist. He was a terrorist. He was out to undo Christianity. He was out to attack and destroy any type of trace or remnant of this Christian doctrine or concept or idea that was now beginning to spread throughout the ancient Roman world. So this is what Paul's agenda was. And yet, Paul gets interrupted. His entire life is thrown overboard in the sense where God grabs a hold of him. Paul's eyes are open. He sees Jesus. His life gets radically transformed. He goes from being a terrorist to now being a church planter. He goes from being a guy that was in opposition to anything that looked like, acted like, tasted like Christianity to now being one of the the main character promoting this reality. For Paul, Christianity was not just some sort of uh, idea or concept or abstraction that was out there. Jesus was literally the sum total of his reality. Paul's entire life became focused on, on Jesus. His entire life, his entire world was reshaped by Jesus. So to the point that Paul uh, literally has a radical, what we would describe as his conversion, where his life is different. That's what it means to meet Jesus, by the way. If you truly meet Jesus, he will change you. Your heart will begin to transform. Your heart will begin to align with the things that are God's. Now, look, this should not be shocking to us. I mean, just think about it in the context of, you know, normal friendship, normal relationship, right? If you are going to become good friends with somebody, and uh, there's going to be some form of, like, shaping to each other. If you're going to get married, you know that you have to somehow enter into this. And similarly, this is what it is like with Jesus. And Except the difference is, is Jesus is not just a pal. He's not a buddy. He's not a good friend. Though he is maybe all of those things to some degree... Jesus is Lord. He's king. That means that as Lord, as king, he has ideas for your life that will bring life, that will bring you into a place of flourishing in life. To go against those things will ultimately lead you to a path of brokenness and hurt. To kind of live according to the dictates of your own heart will bring about the same types of brokenness. And that's, for the most part, how we oftentimes live. We live according to what the script or the narrative that the culture is saying, hey, live according to this. Live according to what the marketing and the advertising is trying to sell you on. Or we live according to what 
our strongest desires are. Look, this is a recipe for your own brokenness. To live according to your strong desires will lead to your brokenness. Because oftentimes, think about it this way, how many times do our desires get us into trouble? Instead, what Jesus does is he changes our hearts. He gives us brand new desires. So we have what I would describe as deep desires, the deepest desires of our heart. So now a follower of Jesus may be someone that is constantly living in this antagonism between our strongest desires, these strong impulses that we have to you know, do things that are counter to God, whatever those strong desires are, and our deepest desires that truly want to please our king. And so that, that's what a Christian is, living in this context. Paul underwent this radical transformation where his heart was changed. His deepest desires were now to become, become a follower of Jesus. So now Paul just went around preaching Jesus. It was this amazing reality of who this guy Paul is. So again, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but just think about how awesome it is what God is doing in this guy. So this guy went from being a terrorist now to go being a church planner in the farthest parts of the world. One of the things to say about this, I think, is kind of ironic. You know, ironic, funny ironic, is that Paul, prior to his uh, conversion, meeting Jesus, Paul gives us a little bit of his profile, kind of his background, who he was. Paul describes himself as being a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was trained under the tutelage of a guy by the name of uh, Galileo. And uh, so Paul kind of had this very strict, elite form of what's called Phariseeism. That was where Paul kind of learned and grew from. So if you know anything about the stories of the Gospels, you know there are this group of people called the Pharisees, right? So if you know anything about the story, you know the Pharisees were oftentimes the ones that were like, complaining about Jesus healing somebody on the Sabbath because, like, why are you doing that? You shouldn't be doing anything good on Sabbath. And Jesus is like, you guys are messed up. So Paul would have been someone that was part of this elite group of uh, followers or strict adherents to the Torah. So that would also include Paul would have had these deep-rooted prejudices against anybody that did not follow the strict rules and dictates of the Torah. So this would mean anybody who was, say, a Gentile, a non-Jew, Paul would definitely had strong feelings toward the Jewish people. So this is what's the ironic reality of the book. Who's Paul going to preach the gospel to? Who's Paul going to plant churches among? Gentiles. Like, how does that happen? Because Jesus changes hearts. Jesus changes lives. So the, I, I like to think of it this way. What, what we see with the guy like Paul is because the gospel is beginning to transform him, his world is becoming bigger, more expansive. I like to think of a Christian as somebody who is being remade and transformed in the image of Jesus, in the image of God. And that means that the world is beginning to become more expansive. There should be more people that we are capable and able to love and reach out to and have dinner with and spend time with and give money away to and give our time and our assistance and our care and our love to. Because prior to becoming followers of Jesus, we may have had bigotry towards other people. We may have had prejudice towards another group of people. But as followers of Jesus, we begin to realize that, that all people made in the image of God, no matter who they are, no matter how broken they are, no matter how different they are from us, need to know this love of, of Yahweh, of God, through Jesus. And so therefore, Paul becomes this guy that realizes, puts away his bigotry, puts away all this nationalism, and now begins to bring the gospel, it's good news, to people that he would normally would have completely distanced himself from. Okay? That's all I'm going to say about Paul. He's a great guy. Second thing, we'll take a look at Paul's method. Paul's method. One thing that comes up throughout the book of Acts is we see Paul actually has a very distinct method. So when Paul typically, he kind of has this MO, right, where he goes into a region, but because Paul, his background was in this elite form of Judaism, a lot of scholars assume that when Paul, like, for example, here, we're told, I'll just read it. It says, uh, Acts 13, verse 11 says, And on the Sabbath day, it would have been a Saturday, um, he went into the synagogue and he sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, uh, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So just the context would be, um, throughout the ancient Roman world, Jews, pockets of Jews, would have been scattered. It was actually called the diaspora. 
um, meaning, meaning that there were all these pockets of Jews living around the ancient Roman world. And so when there was a large population of Jews living throughout the ancient world, they would form these, these small communities, these small congregations, and somebody would you know, say, hey, we've got some money, let's build a little space, some spot, some area, and we'll call this a synagogue, and in the synagogue we'll gather together every single Sabbath, we'll study scripture, we'll read, we'll pray, we'll sing some songs, very similar to like what we would do obviously as a church. Well, when Paul walks in there, Paul would typically go to these very small congregations of Jewish people. Now, these weren't messianic, meaning they didn't believe necessarily in Jesus. They were just faithful, Torah-observing Jews. Now, many of us, obviously, I I can't imagine many of us are actually Jewish or maybe familiar with a lot of this, but Paul would go to these, these social areas. And so a lot of questions would be like, how did they know that Paul had a word? Like, why would they motion to Paul and Barnabas? And this kind of raises an interesting question that some have actually offered, though it's not explicit here in the text. Some have suggested that Paul actually walked around dressed up, all right, like a rabbi. Like Paul wore certain robes. So modern day context would be kind of like a, uh, I don't know, like a priest wearing, you know, his robe. and He's got his little dog collar, whatever it is, kind of as a way of indicating that, oh, you're a holy man or you're, you know, a priest or you're a person that's of religion or whatever. That same type of idea, that back in that day, they would have kind of like this this gown that you would wear with certain indicative type elements on there that when Paul would have walked in there, they would have known, okay, this this guy, he's somebody important, Um, he's trained, he's skilled, he must be a scholar, he must be somebody that would be capable of delivering a word of encouragement, which is kind of interesting because this is Paul's M.O. Paul's going to Gentile territory, people in in which he knows he's going to encounter a lot of non-Jewish people. But for the most part, Paul would go into the Jewish synagogues first and try to get into the you know, list of being able to communicate. Paul, as a preacher, always had something to say. And so Paul would communicate, and as long as people were willing to keep hearing the story that he was going to communicate, they would invite him back over and over again, week after week, which is what we're going to see here at the end of the story. Um, Paul would just keep doing that. And oftentimes, what would typically happen is that Paul would end up getting kicked out. Because at some point... Uh, people would be like, we don't like your story anymore. We don't want to hear about Jesus anymore. Please leave, leave our town. And there are cases, and we'll get to this as we get further into the book of Acts, that Paul would actually go to certain cities, and he would talk about Jesus. And it would get violent, there are occasions. And there are occasions in which Paul was literally driven out, uh, running out of the city with people chasing behind him with pitchforks and tar and feather, not really tar and feather. But the idea was that they were hostile towards Paul. So here's what we see. Paul would typically do this. And then when he would be, have his back turned on by the Jewish synagogue, then he would go to the Gentile people and just kind of do the same thing. But this was, for the most part, Paul's MO. So the idea that I want to convey is this, is that there are methods in the Bible. And what, when, we, when you read the Bible, many of us, we read the Bible, there's two different ways to kind of read passages, as some as prescriptive, some as descriptive. Uh, passages that are prescriptive, what that basically means is if you're reading a passage and it says, here, do this, that's prescriptive. It's prescribing something for you. Then there's other passages that are just simply descriptive. This is, so this passage right here, is this prescriptive or descriptive? It's like audience participation here. Descriptive, right? It's just simply describing. Like, here's what Paul did. It's not saying, hey, if you're going to reach people for Jesus, go into synagogues, uh, you know, wear a certain outfit, and then talk about Jesus. It's, it's just descriptive. It's just describing to us how Paul actually conducted himself, how Paul did this. The important thing to note that oftentimes in the Bible, methods are distinct from the message. So methods, the way that we communicate Jesus to other people, is open to a wide variety of methods, of ways of doing it. There's no specific way, for the most part, in which the Bible says you must do it this way, you must wear a certain type of clothing. You must act a certain way. You must, and the beauty of that is it actually opens the door. It blows open the door that says, look, no matter who and what type of people group we're trying to communicate the gospel to, whether they're skaters or surfers or you know, secretaries at a library, that there are ways in which people function and think and deal with life that we can communicate the gospel to them through a method that is convenient for them without actually violating the message. Does that make sense? So when we become focused on a particular method and saying, no, 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 the Bible has to be preached in this particular way. You have to dress a particular way. Women have to have buns and churn butter and, pre- and pastors need to wear certain clothing. Then somehow what happens is we become cultic. 
we become kind of like this collective group that looks all the same way. But the point of the matter is, we see a lot of variety throughout the New Testament of how methods, methods of how the gospel was communicated. This was Paul's MO. This is just, so I think that the point to make is this, is that for you as someone who is a follower of Jesus, we all have people in our lives in which God has planted you uniquely, specifically in their life to demonstrate Jesus to them. Be yourself. Be yourself. Recognize that God has given you certain gifts, given you certain abilities, given you certain passions, certain desires. Be yourself. But the second thing is make sure that the message resonates, synchronizes with the message that Paul is about to share. So that's what I want to move on to the very last thing. We'll take a look at some final things with regard to this and kind of move on and close. So let's jump into the final thing with regard to Paul's message. Paul's message. So Paul's going to begin to talk and communicate to these people. I'll just jump in. I'll take a look at verse 16. I'll read it in my Bible. Here it says this. Make sure I'm on the right page. So Paul begins to start out and says, Men uh, of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Now Paul's going to begin to communicate to them. Um, the message that Paul speaks, I'm going to break it down basically into three sections. The first part is he's going to talk a lot about Israel's history. Second thing he begins to talk about is Jesus in the script, or you can think of it this way, Jesus in the scripture, because I like to think about the scripture as being the script of God. It's something that God authored, God wrote, uh, just like a script for a play. It's being played out. Jesus is the main character that Paul is basically inserting into this long history of the people of Israel. And finally, is this radical invitation to actually enter into the story. Rather than just simply being a participant, someone on the outside, someone observing, someone reading and critiquing, Paul's invitation is to enter in, come into the story. We like to say the word, be restored. I like to think of the word restored as being be restoried, be brought into the story of what God is doing. So, if I were to give a title to this morning's message, I would describe it something along the lines of the story of redemption. Because that's really what Paul is going to begin to unpack for us. It's a story of redemption. The redemption, the story of God, what God is doing is actually this long history. So I'm going to take a look at these three things. One, let's jump in and take a look specifically at Israel's history. What Paul does, beginning at verse 16, he begins to basically unpack kind of a typical status quo storyline of the people of Israel's history. So there are a couple other occasions in the book of Acts in which there are these sermons or messages that are given. Uh, one is by a guy by the name of Stephen. He gives a sermon, a message. Uh, Peter speaks and communicates. And their sermons or messages or monologues, if you want to think about it, are, are very similar, at least when it comes to the history or the history line of the people of Israel. Here's a few things to just think about that they kind of, uh, they have, they possess. They begin with the, in, in Egypt, like God calls this uh, oppressed people group out of this world superpower by the name of Egypt. And in Egypt, there was this oppressed, suppressed people group called the Jewish people. They had these fathers, you know, ancient fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But now Israel in Egypt was nothing more than a suppressed people group, kind of like the Yazidis, all right? Or Basques living in particular parts of France. Or people group, for the most part, that kind of feel like we are oppressed. We don't have a voice. We don't have a vote. We're overcome by the oppression and the weightiness of empire. This is the people of Israel. And God calls them and says, you be my people, and I'll take care of you. And it leads into the story of the Exodus, where God, with a radically outstretched arm, and describes his love actually freeing them, doing something, in other words, for this oppressed people group that they could not do for themselves. God frees them. This is what we call the Exodus. Uh, and then he describes them throughout the wilderness. Briefly, it talks about their entrance into what we would call the promised land. So in other words, God pulls this oppressed people group out from underneath the fingernail of this world superpower called Egypt, and then brings them from that part of the world into the land of promise, where God then plants them. Now, while they're in the land of Israel, they begin to prosper. Good things begin to happen. God provides for them what we are described as judges. These are just simply people that God rises up and says, hey, they'll kind of take some form of a leadership role for the next, you know, however many years they're alive or they get killed or some form of battle happens and they die. But the point of the matter is, God, God of the story, 
frequently, over and over and over again. I would maybe even encourage you to do this on your own time, but to read how many times in this sermon Paul describes, and God did, and God said this, and God acted upon this. This is like a dozen times, which Paul is basically describing God's activity. This is amazing. Here's, here's why. What Paul wants uh, his listeners to understand really clearly, and for us, you know, here we are, 2016, we're reading a sermon. You're hearing a sermon being preached about a sermon. But no doubt what Paul wants his audience to hear is God's intricate uh, involvement in their lives. This is really important to know because for some of us, we actually wonder that. We think about that. We ponder that. We meditate upon that a lot. And the question oftentimes is, where is God in our lives? And it's really easy to let that narrative become something that hijacks us, especially when you're suffering, especially when there's darkness, especially when, metaphorically, there's challenges throughout your life and you're trying to figure out where's God. It's oftentimes easier to actually push it to the limit of saying, God, I don't even think you're around. I think you're absent. You're not around. You're not doing anything. There's no involvement in my life, in my world, in my neighborhood, in my work, in anything, in any part of my life. And what Paul wants to say over and over again, no, 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 God's involvement is all around them. All the time. God never forsakes his people. Even in moments where we feel forsaken, God truly never forsakes us. And this is the message that Paul keeps reiterating over and over again. And finally, he begins to talk about kings. And then there's a guy by the name of King Saul gets raised up. He becomes a king. And then Saul, it's removed, and another king by the name of David. And most of us are familiar with a guy by the name of David. Paul uh, says this in verse 22. I'll read this and kind of wrap this up. He says, and he, it's God, raised up David to be the heir, to be their king. And he said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. This is it's an important uh, statement to identify the fact that, that David, unlike Saul, it's the comparison going on here, Unlike Saul, David wants to do the will in the heart and the mind of God. In verse 23, he says, Of this man's offspring, David, David's offspring, God has brought into Israel a Savior, Jesus, just as he has promised. Now, you're going to see that phrase over and over again, just as he has promised, or something similar to it like, it is written, or as it is written. They're all basically saying the same thing. The idea is that God's not making this up as he goes. This is all foreordained. It's all planned according to God's, what we would describe as God's foreknowledge. Or again, to use another metaphor, the scripture, the script. God has authored a script and he's going according to that script. That's exactly what Paul is basically reiterating. That God has not forsaken his people. So here's a question. What happens? So throughout the ancient world, um, kings where oftentimes another word or metaphor used to describe a king was a shepherd. So what happens if you have a bad shepherd, bad king, right? Uh, As a nation, morally, militarily, all these other ways, you kind of go downhill. And the people of Israel had this regular, frequent, like a treadmill, constantly going down this path of brokenness and ruin because they had a bad king, bad kings, bad shepherds. And so what God is saying is that, listen, You guys are like sheep that have gone astray. There's no good shepherd leading you or guiding you. But God says, I'm going to give you another king, very much like David. He's going to be from from his lineage. He's going to have the same heart that wants to do the will of God. And then fast forward, you know, several hundred years or whatever, to the time of Jesus. Jesus stands up and he says, I am the good shepherd. That is not just simply a nice, cute, cuddly, like, metaphorical claim of Jesus to kind of make us think about sheep. It's Jesus' way of saying, I am the good king. I've come to shepherd you who are lost, who are trying to make sense of life, who are constantly going down pathways that lead to your reoccurring lostness and your sense of lostness. This is Jesus's claim of saying, I will be a one that will bring you order and life and help and wholeness should you allow me. So Jesus is saying. So Paul makes this point that Jesus enters into Israel's history so one thing to note, I think it's really important at this point, just think about Paul's message. Paul's message has certain components in it, and he's going to describe it as it's all good news. Later on, we'll read a passage that Paul says that this is the good news of God, or the gospel. Paul's uh, way of proclaiming and describing the good news, another word to think about it is gospeling, the way Paul gospels this gospel message, is there certain components that Paul points out. And I think it's, there's, several years ago I read a book, and I was kind of make, you know, 
trivial note of it. Uh, it's a book by a guy by the name of Scott McKnight. He's, uh, he's a, um, a noted scholar, theologian, and he wrote this book called The King Jesus Gospel. And it's a really great book that actually really shaped the way I think about this type of stuff. He basically makes his point. He says that throughout the New Testament, you have these images, especially Paul preaching, that there's certain elements that Paul says, this is what the gospel is. And then he just continues to describe the gospel is this guy, Jesus, coming into this long history of people of Israel, that Jesus is the climax, he's the fulfillment of this long storyline of this lost group of people called the Jews. But through this Jesus, the completion of the people of Israel, salvation has broken forth into the world, and all who trust him will have their sins forgiven. So there's like two components that he describes. One is Jesus being the completion of the people of Israel. Here's a perfect example, all right? If you don't believe me on this, you want to question, check, check this in. Check this out. Matthew chapter 1, I think it is, somewhere around there, Matthew. Um, I have it written in my notes somewhere, but it's going to make me get lost if I look for it. But in the book of Matthew, it starts out, and it describes this little statement about Jesus. It says, uh, Jesus um, goes down to Egypt and comes back, and it says, out of Egypt I've called my son. So Matthew makes this attempt to basically say Jesus is, is literally by way of his life and actions modeling the people of Israel. Have you ever wondered one other final thing? Have you ever wondered why in the world did Jesus call 12 apostles, not 14, like not 80, not 7, not 2? Why 12? Because there were 12 tribes of Israel. Why did Jesus go down to the Jordan and get baptized? It's like, that seems weird. Like if he's God, right, he doesn't have any sin, doesn't need to be baptized. Why? Because Jesus was basically Jordan, the Jordan River, was the river that the children of Israel crossed from their wilderness journeys on into the land of the promise. And what Jesus is basically taking upon, he's doing these symbols to basically say, I am the new Israel of God. I am doing something for Israel that Israel failed repeatedly to do. I am the climax, the fulfillment in my life, my death, my burial, and my resurrection. All that Israel was unable to do. And if you trust me, believe me, follow me, make me your king, through that action, I will wash and cleanse and purge your guilt, your sin, your shame. So you can come out of hiding, come out of the darkness and find light. This is what Paul is basically announcing. So the reason why I say this is because it's interesting. In the stories or in the preaching of guys like Paul the Apostle and Peter and other sermons in the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts in particular... Um, if, if I were to go around and ask a normal, like, modern-day, westernized, evangelical Christian, what is the gospel? So if I were to ask you right now, like, write down, what is the gospel? Spell out the gospel. What would your definition of gospel have? What would be some of the elements of it? I think probably some of the more uh, popular ways of expressing or thinking about the gospel would be something like this, right? So I think most of us kind of resonate with this. One, the gospel is you're pretty jacked up, you're pretty messed up, you are a sinner. Secondly, God, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Thirdly, God did something for you, he died for you. Fourthly, if you believe in this God, you will go to heaven when you die. So the gospel, in many of our minds, consists of those four elements. We're messed up, God loves us. God has a plan for us. He did something for us. And if we trust in this God, we will go to heaven when we die. Now, what I want to be really, really clear on is that all of those things are 100% true, and I believe them all. Absolutely. So, yes, we are pretty jacked up. We're pretty messed up. Secondly, uh, God does love us. Yes, absolutely. God demonstrated his love to us in that when we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. Thirdly, yes, God did something profound for us. I just mention that. Fourthly, yes, if we trust this God, then when we die, when we flatline, we will go be with him. Yes, absolutely. We will be in his presence. But here's the shocking thing. That storyline I just gave you is actually nowhere in Paul's sermon. Paul doesn't talk about how jacked up we are. Paul doesn't talk about going to heaven when we die. Does Paul not believe in those things? Of course he does. He absolutely does. But here's my point. Paul's gospel, Paul's gospeling involves some really important components. And here's what I would try to drive home. Hopefully this all makes sense. You guys, you guys doing good? You guys okay? Don't shoot me yet. Just finish out this train of thought and then you can shoot me. That's fine. But here's the point. Here's the point. Is that the idea that many scholars and theologians are trying to reclaim and recover is that this idea of the gospel is to be first found not in an individual experience with God, 
but rather first and foremost to be found within the storyline of Christ being the fulfillment of the people of Israel. Then from that comes this individual experience with God. You guys follow along? Does that make sense? It's how, at least it's how Paul preaches the gospel. How Paul wants us to, he frames the gospel for us in this way. That the gospel is not just simply about us going to heaven when we die. Though it would include that the gospel is about a person, Jesus. That in his life, death, burial, and resurrection, we have life. We have forgiveness of sins. We have hope of life everlasting. That's how Paul frames it. So my suggestion would be, and again, how to kind of word it. You know, we love phrases that we can simply kind of put onto a teacup. Uh, it's very hard, I think. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I, I'm all for trying to simplify things, but sometimes we can simplify things so much so to where it's sanitized so much it loses its depth. So sometimes in explaining the gospel, it may take some time to reiterate, to reframe it so that it captures the essence of what the gospel really is, and rather than just simply cheapens it. That's all I'm simply saying. So Paul basically wants us to understand that salvation, the gospel, the good news, is actually anchored in this historical narrative of Jesus. Right? You guys all good? All right, next point. Are you sure you're good? I can go back and re-preach it. All right. Second thing is that we see that Jesus uh, really is, 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 is in the script. He's in the scripture. Like this whole story is actually about him. I'll just read this and then I'll make some quick points and move on to the last one. He says this, when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb, but God raised him from the dead. For many days he appeared to those in Galilee and Jerusalem who are now eyewitnesses. And we bring you the good news. Here's that phrase, good news or uh, gospel. We bring you the good news that what God promised, again, here's that phrase, what God promised, what God said, what God promised to our fathers, he has fulfilled to us by raising Jesus as it is written. Again, the point that is to be emphasized, this good news is anchored tightly, completely in a person, the person being Jesus, that he has done something for us, that in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, we have hope. So one other final like, trivia question for you. Um, at the beginning of our New Testament, we have these four books. We call them the Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four Gospels. Um, a lot of questions like, is, is the Gospel in there? What's the Gospel? I would conclude and say this, along with many other scholars and theologians, that those four stories or retellings of the story of Jesus are indeed Gospel. They are. Those four Gospels are one unified Gospel because all of them contain the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. All four of them fulfilling the history of the people of Israel and proclaiming forgiveness of sins and new life to those that follow this new king. Does that make sense? You guys all good? Okay, I wrap this up. So this is what Paul says, that Jesus is really all about the Old Testament passages. Final thing, I'm done. He says this in verse uh, 38. He says, let it be known to you, therefore, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said to the prophets or in the prophets should come about. And wrap it up with this thought is, first of all, he makes this announcement. He says, let it be known, believe, trust, believe this, bring it in unto yourself. And as you do, the forgiveness of sins, the cleansing of sins, the washing of your guilt and guilty conscience and the shame that oftentimes defines us will be washed away. Why is that? How is that possible? Because we have a God that has come to us and lifted our guilt and shame. Many of us, find ourselves covered and covering ourselves frequently over and over again, repeatedly in our guilt and our shame. And we stay in the shadows. We stay isolated. We marginalize ourselves. We pull ourselves away from others. All of that are forms of brokenness and destruction that continue to compound themselves in our lives. And the message of the gospel is God says, you don't need to stay in the shadows any longer. You can come out of the darkness, come out of the guilt and the shame that you find mounted upon yourself because it's been lifted. I've borne it. That's what we see on the cross. Jesus 
bearing our guilt and our shame and taking upon himself the brokenness and the sin and the judgment he bears upon himself. And that's why he would say those who trust in him would be washed. But he ends with this final thing, sobering note. He says, beware. And the beware is this. It's possible for us to hear this message and yawn. It's true. It's possible for us to hear this message and be bored. It's possible for us to hear this and not be moved in our heart. And what he says is that beware because there is a path that we will then continue to go down. And the question is, is that path a path of life? And what Paul is basically arguing for, he says, the path that most of us, all of us, walk down on and in and of our own selves and according to our own understanding will always lead to a way that seems right in our own mind. No matter how strong the desires are. I mean, if, you, if I were to ask you right now, what are the strongest impulses and desires in your heart? One of you might be like, for this guy to stop talking. And the reality is some of us have these strong impulses and desires, but we know that if we give into those strong impulses and desires, will actually lead to us maybe getting fired from our job, maybe getting divorced because we would break and destroy the trust, or maybe lead to a breakup or a ruin within our friendships because we don't act according to our strongest desires. We shouldn't act according to our strongest desires because oftentimes they are a path to death and brokenness. So what's the solution? We need our hearts to be shepherded by a king that will realign them and bring them to life. And this is exactly what Paul is saying, that this king, should you allow him, will take control of your heart and life and bring you to life. He'll wash your sins. He'll cleanse you. He'll forgive you. Because of his life, death, burial, and resurrection, he has come to life. And therefore, because he's alive, you also could live as well. This is the invitation that God offers to all of us to come. The final thing I want to finish with is just a thought, just kind of a thing to think about and consider. Now, the book of Acts ends in chapter 8, chapter 28. Sorry, it's the last chapter of the entire book, chapter 28. There's beyond 28, there's no final chapter, right? So the way the book ends is really interesting. It concludes with a very awkward finishing. Like, there's really no clear-cut conclusion throughout the book. And there's a lot of scholars, theologians, that believe this is actually intentional. But the way Luke writes this story is to basically stop the book in a way that just kind of keeps it as an open book. Like, the story continues. And the concept would be, if you were to play this out, is that the book of Acts is really thought to be this book that sets in motion this continuing arc or trajectory or narrative that not only of how the church was, like how did the church act way back then, but how the church should continue to act in future ages. In other words, maybe put it into a bigger, broader context, today, right now, how the church could, right now, how Calvary Slow could act in this context of today. So if you were to think about this, I was kind of working through this, and thought came to my mind. Like, what if Luke somehow could have, like, a pre-resurrection resurrection? Like, he came back from the dead and lived today. He's like, hey, I'm the author of the book of Acts. Uh, seems like a cool place to hang out. San Luis, I like this. Um, I, I, I want to do some interviews. I want to write Acts chapter 29. And I want to write Acts chapter 29 with you being the main central character. Not Paul, because Paul's past. I want to write a current, up-to-date description of this ongoing narrative called the book of Acts. And you're going to be Acts chapter 29. If you were to kind of like begin to sit down and interview your life and ask you, think about it this way, that many of us in today's culture, there would be perhaps a radical discontinuity with the regular storyline of the book of Acts in the next chapter 29 on, on our lives. So let me give you an example. All right, let's just throw out two common people, uh, John Doe, Jane Doe, so for example, um, they're really good friends. So let's say, for example, John Doe and Jane Doe, they, this is the story of their life. When they were 16, they prayed the prayer. They gave their life to Jesus. They went to camp. Um, they went to Hume Lake. They were really involved with youth group for a period of time. Then after high school, they went to college. They got involved in uh, college uh, campus life and whatnot, ministry and so on and so forth. Then they started going to church and their attendance at church was maybe, you know, once the typical status American church attendance, maybe once every four weeks, once every eight weeks, somewhere on there. And they would give every once in a while, every once in a while, they might give like a check for 20 bucks or something like that when the church play was passed around. When there was needs to be offered or announced at the church, they might periodically get involved and help maybe once every six months. Um, Now they're able to kind of, after college, they get a job, they make some money, 
Now they have a nice house. Let's say, for example, Jane and John get married, and now they begin to grow. They're family. They have money. They buy a nice house, a nice white picket fence around. Uh, they've accumulated a lot of wealth. They've got several cars, maybe even a vacation home. And every once in a while, they go to church. Every once in a while, they might give a little bit of money. And if their story got into the book of Acts, here's what modern-day American 2016 Christianity looks like through the life of John and Jane Doe. Would there not be a discontinuity? At some point, you'd be like, Acts chapter 28, and then 29, like, whoa, something's not, not right. But that's the American dream. Something is not congruent with the typical arc and trajectory. Let's say, for example, their story was rewritten in a different way. They get saved, they meet Jesus at age 16, whatever, they go through high school group, they're radically transformed, they go on a few missions trips after school, they get involved in the church, they're helping out in the children's ministry, they're serving, they're figuring out ways in which they can live the gospel in their lives, they get involved at college, they go get involved not only in the church, but maybe in on-campus ministry, once they're able to graduate, make some money, now they're seeing their lives, nothing just a portion of it, but the entirety of their lives as a part of the opportunity of making the gospel made known through everything they have. So they buy a house, not simply just so they could find greater comfort and security, but they buy a house with the mindset of what type of place and property can we have that could be a best use and blessing to other people. Let's buy a couch so that others can come sit on it. We can pray for them and pray for their deliverance and pray they meet Jesus. And we can have a house that can be opened up and kindness and generosity and hospitality can be shown. And we pray for those that are sick and those that are hurting. Those that don't have clothes, we give them clothing. Those that have need, we give them a place to stay. Their story, if it was written by Luke in Acts chapter 29, would seem to flow nicely. I just say this, not in any way, just guilt and shame do not motivate long-term. They bring more guilt and shame. But just think about this. I think the book of Acts is written with an open ending as a way of saying, come in, be part of the story, your life. If you met this risen Jesus, if your life has been transformed by the resurrected Christ, come join, be a part of what he is doing here, now, live in a way that demonstrates through everything that you are. If you're married in a way that demonstrates your marriage as a living, breathing demonstration of the life of Christ. If you're single, use your singleness in such a way that demonstrates a life that's deeply committed to the family of God, the larger church body. If you're a student, if you're somebody that's working in the marketplace, whatever, live your life in such a way that makes Jesus seen as this resurrected, powerful, loving, kind, good God who is out and mighty to save. That's the invitation, to come in, to trust, to receive, to be restored, to be restored into the story of God. That's where our life and hope ultimately are found. So it's an invitation. It's an invitation to all of us. 